reading Psalm 111 first this morning, and then we'll turn to our text in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Psalm 111, we're reading God's inspired and infallible word. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. In the company of the upright and in the assembly, great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Splendid and majestic is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has made his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He has given food to those who fear him. He will remember his covenant forever. He has made known to his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are truth and justice. All his precepts are sure. They are upheld forever and ever. They are performed in truth and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 is our text. We'll read the first three verses. Actually, we'll read this whole first chapter. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope, in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report to us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath of God. This is God's gracious word, able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Amen. Amen. 
Amen. Be seated, please, as we turn to our hymn of preparation, 98 in the Trinity Hymnal. together. Our God, we confess that even as we have sung, we are often perplexed in this life and we deal with the troubles, all the ills that this world deals to us, this life deals to us, nothing apart from your hand. You said, O Lord, that uh, you cause all things to work together for good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose. But, O oh Lord, we also confess that we need the guidance of your word and the guidance of your spirit when we are troubled in this life, when we're perplexed, when difficulties assail us. So we ask now, that you would lead us in your word by the Spirit's ministry, that that word would be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. 
In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. It's hard to believe that it's already Thanksgiving. Seems like it just was Thanksgiving last year, and here we are again at that time of giving thanks. Uh, something that all people ought to do, but something that Christians especially ought to do out of gratitude for all that God has done for them and especially in the Lord Jesus Christ, for all the covenant benefits that accompany us in this life uh, that are helps to us, encouragements to us as we make our way through our pilgrimage to the celestial city. Paul was a man who was always thankful, always expressing his thanksgiving. A spirit of gratitude shines through his writings. In most of his letters, the greeting is followed by an expression of thanksgiving to God. The apostle knew that he personally had much to be thankful for. He had once been a misguided, self-righteous persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ, deserving God's severest wrath. Instead, he'd received his mercy and his love, as he often confesses in his writings. What else could he be but thankful for all that God had done for him? But Paul wasn't only thankful for himself and for what he'd received from God. He was thankful for what God was doing in the lives of his people. He had a keen sense of Uh, what the Lord was doing in the church, in the lives of members of uh, the church. He knew that every sign of true spiritual life could be traced back to God's mercy and grace. And whenever he saw those signs, he was quick to give thanks to God. The Thessalonian Christians gave Paul and his co-laborers in ministry, his fellow missionaries, much for which to be thankful and to thank God. Suddenly deprived of their founding missionaries, the newly formed church hadn't only survived the onslaught of what came after their departure, but had thrived under these circumstances. They had held true to the Christian faith. They had grown in faith and love. The apostle says here in Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 18 that after the mission team was forced uh, to depart from Athens, or rather from Thessalonica prematurely, and then eventually land in Athens, he had tried more than once to get back to Thessalonica, but Satan had hindered him. When he couldn't stand it any longer, he sent Timothy. 
And when his spiritual son returned uh, to Athens and gave the report that uh, the church in Thessalonica was, had kept the faith, that, that they were thriving in the faith, the apostle could hardly express, find words to express his thanksgiving and hardly contain his joy. Chapter 3, verses 6 and 9 here in 1 Thessalonians says. And so having identified himself and his co-laborers, Silvanus and Timothy, to the church whom he calls uh, the ecclesia, the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, and having extended God's grace and peace to them, Paul begins on this note of thanksgiving. We have before us in our text a model of constancy in prayerful thanksgiving and a reminder of causes for thanksgiving. Now, there are thousands upon thousands of reasons, uh, thousands of causes that we ought to be thankful to God. But Paul, in particular in reference to the Thessalonican church, gives us a number of causes here. So we'll look at two things then, constant prayer with thanksgiving and causes for thanksgiving. Constant prayer with thanksgiving and causes for thanksgiving. For he turns to the causes for thanksgiving, Paul speaks of constant prayer with thanksgiving. Paul assures these believers of his relentless prayers for them in verses 2 and 3 of our text. Two words describe this relentlessness, the words always and constantly. These convey the ceaselessness of Paul's prayer. Paul and his missionary team had maintained an incessant prayer vigil for their persecuted friends in Thessalonica. I don't know if you've ever been to a prayer vigil. I, ha I have not, as it turns out. I don't think been to a prayer vigil. I, I, I read about prayer vigils, and I, I, I even see prayer vigils uh, reported in the news. I don't know how much prayer actually goes on at these uh, vigils, but uh, I see a lot of candles lit when I see them reported on the news, so I know that happens. And whatever the case, this vigil was a, a vigil that was filled with ceaseless prayer, with thanksgiving, for the church at Thessalonica. These men... These missionaries, Paul, Silvanus, Timothy, saw themselves as spiritual parents to the Thessalonians. That's how they describe, that's how Paul describes them in chapter 2, verses 7 and 8 and 11. And just as little children are never far from the thoughts of their Parents, so the Thessalonians, as the spiritual children of these missionaries, were never far 
from the minds of Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. In all likelihood, Paul the Christian kept up a regular schedule of prayer that he had learned as Saul the Jew. That being the case, he would have prayed at least three times a day, morning, noon, and evening. And it would appear for, that a, a prayer session rarely passed or never passed, perhaps, without the apostle and his companions thanking God for the church of the Thessalonians. In this way, he assures that uh, the believers there that, uh, that they were never out of his mind. It might seem that way to them because he hadn't revisited them uh, and the taunts of their persecutors, we know from uh, this letter uh, and the next that they were uh, intensely persecuted, especially by the Jews, as the Jews had persecuted, persecuted the missionary team. Uh, but if, if any doubts had been raised in their minds as to whether Paul and, and his co-laborers had forgotten them, they were erased when Paul put their fears to rest by writing to them and letting them know that we are constantly uh, in this prayer vigil for you, our beloved believers, uh, our, our spiritual children in Thessalonica. It says a lot about Paul that the first thing that Jesus mentions about Paul after his conversion now, this is recorded in Acts chapter 9, verses 11, is behold, his prey. Not a bad beginning to anyone's spiritual biography. And it's as though that struck a keynote in Paul's subsequent life that, that he would, to a special degree, be a man of prayer. Prayer lay at the heart of Paul's ministry as an apostle, as a pastor, as a preacher, as a missionary. None of these roles, none of these hats that he wore as a man of God, as one called by God, could be separated from his prayerfulness. And if we were to see anything approaching Paul's faithfulness in our lives, in our ministry, we must recapture his faithfulness in prayer, in our prayer life. Like Paul, we should pray for a wide range of things, for a family, friends, servants of Christ in our denomination, the churches of the nations, our presbytery, our local congregation. Some Christians do this by keeping a list of churches and individuals for whom they uh, will pray on each day of the week or systematically. Others might pray through uh, a church directory or a presbytery directory uh, so as to be constantly uh, in uh, prayer for the churches and fellow believers you know, using other helps to pray for the churches of the nations, the, church, the persecuted church. But we ought to be praying and be steadfast in our prayers. Be faithful 
in our prayers. Isaac Watts wrote, Fellowship with God in prayer is the life and pleasure of a pious soul. Think about that for a moment. Is that how you... Is that your perspective on prayer? When you come to prayer, is that your perspective when you bow your knee before God and pray to Him? Is prayer the life and pleasure of your soul? Watts goes on to say that without Without it, without prayer, we are not Christians. And he that practices it most is the best follower of Christ. And when we pray, our prayers should be richly adorned with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is a distinctive mark of Christian prayer. Westminster Shorter Catechism 98 defines prayer as an offering up of our desires to God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with the confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. This is a time marked on our calendars. It's even marked for us on our digital calendars on our cell phones and on our laptops, on our computers, that this is a time of thanksgiving. And to be sure, we should spend significant time at this time of year giving thanks to God. We shouldn't just let the holiday festivities sweep us into nothingness, but we should use that day of celebration, the time that we have off especially, and other times this week, to be especially thankful for what God has done for us, whether spiritually or materially. But we shouldn't be thankful only one week a year or one day a year. Prayer should constantly adorn A thanksgiving, rather, should constantly adorn our prayers to God. Constant prayer with thanks marked Paul's Christian experience. Shouldn't it mark our experience? Secondly, Paul addresses causes for thanksgiving, in particular, with regard to the church at Thessalonica and what the Lord was doing in the church there. Paul and his companions didn't merely thank God in a vague or a general way for the Thessalonians. Oh Lord, thank you for this church. Thank you for what you're doing in this church. Rather, three things in particular came to mind as they remembered this congregation in prayer. First, their work produced by faith. Second, their labor prompted by love. And third, their steadfastness inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. So first, faith produced, faith produced good work. 
uh, good works marked the, the Thessalonican church. Faith produced good works marked the Thessalonian church. Paul makes it abundantly clear in his writings that sinners are justified by faith in Christ alone, apart from any good works. For example, Galatians 2.16, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says this so often in Galatians and Romans, and it's a doctrine that can't be mistaken. Apart from the works of the law, he so often says that justification is a work of God's grace and that the instrument of that justification is faith in Jesus Christ. As sinners, it's impossible for us that we could ever uh, cover up our guilt. With, even, if, even if we tried to do so with countless good works, even if we were able to keep every commandment, the best of our works are tainted by sinful motives and can't erase the record of our sin. So this expression that Paul uses, the work of faith, he gives thanks for the work of faith, might make some Christians a little nervous. Especially Christians who've embraced the doctrines of grace, which includes that wondrous doctrine of justification by faith. Having been justified uh, by faith, however, a Christian is called to do what Paul here calls the work of faith. A connection that he makes explicit in that familiar text in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. And then in verse 10, Paul goes on to say, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand, for us beforehand, that we should walk in them. So, there's the connection between that glorious doctrine of justification by faith alone and sanctification, which follow, uh, always follows our good works. Now, what exactly does Paul have in mind in the work of faith? We might think of any number of good works uh, that uh, faith produces, and in particular for the Believers at Thessalonica, turning from idolatry and sin. We read uh, that in uh, chapter 1 and verse 9. And Paul will emphasize that later, again, in the letter. Faithful work in one's vocational calling, whether uh, in the home or outside of the home. Evangelism and other vital ministries uh, in the church that Paul also writes about here in this first chapter and then uh, again in subsequent chapters. But Benjamin Morgan Palmer, uh, great Presbyterian minister of, of uh, days past, uh, points out that Paul speaks of 
work. He speaks not of the works of faith, but of singular, the work of faith, rather than works in the plural, suggesting that faith produces work as an undivided whole, a continuous body of activity. So Paul has in mind the body of work here, the whole of uh, the work that faith produces, that justification by faith necessarily produces in the life of a believer, increasing fruitfulness and obedience to the instructions and the commands in Scripture. The gospel will always produce the work of faith in the life of the believer when it's truly and genuinely believed. Westminster Confession of Faith, 11, uh, section, uh, chapter 11, section 2, defines the relationship between faith and good works, justification and sanctification, by saying faith is the alone instrument of justification, yet it's never alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all saving graces. James, you remember, in the second chapter of his epistle, says that faith without works is a dead faith. These two can't be separated. Works don't save us, but they're necessary to salvation. And it's not too strong to say that. Because the writer uh, of Hebrews says that without sanctification, we won't see the Lord. That being the case, professions of faith, not followed by good works, as the Bible defines them, must be considered suspect. So if you're listening to this sermon today and you're one who calls himself or herself a Christian uh, and your faith in Jesus Christ isn't accompanied by fruitfulness, then your confession of faith in Christ is called into suspect. There's a big question mark hanging over your profession of faith. The work of faith, that's a, the first thing that Paul gives thanks for. Secondly, the second cause for thanksgiving on behalf of the Thess Thessalonians was labor prompted by love. Whereas work focuses on the deeds themselves, labors, uh, labor rather uh, considers the effort that is required. The word labor uh, means an arduous toil, an unceasing hardship endured for love's sake. Love, here in our text, translates the Greek agape, which we're uh, familiar with. It's, it's an unqualified love. It's a word that wasn't used much in the Greek language before Christians took it up and, and made it their characteristic word for love. And as good a way as any as grasping the, the Christian's new conception of love, 
is to contrast it with the idea conveyed by uh, the Greek word eros, another uh, word for love in the Greek, uh, not used in the Bible, but used in the Greek-speaking world, which has two principal characteristics. It's a love of the worthy, and it's a love that desires to possess. Love of the worthy, love of, of that desires to possess. Agape is, in contrast, at both of these points. It's not a love of the worthy, and it's not a love that desires to possess. On the contrary, it's a love of those who are not worthy, and it's a love that desires and determines to give. God loves not because people are worthy, but because he's that kind of God who is pleased to love those who are unlovely, who are not worthy of his love. It's in God's nature to love. He is love, John says in 1 John 4, 8. God's love is a giving love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Paul espouses uh, the biblical view of love uh, in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 8, for while we were yet helpless, at the right time God died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So if someone is at least in the world's eyes righteous, you can see the descending order here, someone who's righteous, someone who's good in the world's eyes, Someone might dare to die. Someone might think it worthy to die for such a one. But what does God do? He dies for those who are unworthy, who are sinners, who are in enmity with him. With him. While they were yet enemies, God saved them through the death of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when it comes to this love, we are faced with a challenge that we can't ignore. Once we see that God is like that, once we see that God is a lover of the unworthy, of the unlovely, as a very part of his nature, that God loves in a way that means Calvary, that means the cross, we either yield to the divine agape to be transformed by that agape, that love, to be remade in the divine image of our God and of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to see people, at least in a measure, as God sees them, 
and to love them as God loves them. Or we do not. And if we do not, we must face the reality of the Apostle John's probing thought there in his first epistle, chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. In this is love, not that we loved, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And then again in chapter 5 and verse 1 of John's first epistle, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. This is one of, the, uh, one of John's three tests for eternal life, you remember. There was a, a social test. Uh, that is, do we love the brethren? There was a doctrinal test. Do, uh, do we believe in uh, the Lord Jesus Christ? And this social test is a test that calls us to examine ourselves. Uh, if we, again, if we, if we have yielded ourselves to God in true faith, those who yield themselves to God are, uh, must be transformed by the power of God's grace such that we uh, love as God loves, that we rejoice to give ourselves in the service of others, to be giving uh, rather than the, the, the givers and not takers. To love one another as ourselves, second only to the first and greatest command, loving God with all of our being. Paul thanks God that this is what the Thessalonians have done. This has been exhibited in the church at Thessalonica. Those believers were loving one another. They were self-sacrificially loving each other. Uh, not just those who they deemed to be worthy of love, but all. And giving themselves, being conformed by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, in the first place, Paul gives thanks for this uh, work of faith, this labor of love. And then the third cause for thanksgiving is their endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the word rendered endurance refers not to a negative, passive acquiescence, but rather an active endurance. Not, it's not the resignation of a passive sufferer that a believer being under suffering yields themselves uh, to God. Rather, it's the fortitude of stout-heartedness in the face of suffering. Hope, you remember, in 
a, the Christian context always has an air of certainty about it. It's a confident expectation. That's how we could translate that word uh, that uh, appears in the Bible, translated as hope. A confident expectation, not an unfounded optimism that, that the world often means by this word, but a confident expectation. More particularly, the Christian hope is ultimately directed toward the second coming of Christ and toward eternal things, which Paul seems to have in mind here, especially given the latter context of this first epistle to the Thessalonians. The result of this hope, this confident expectation, this forward-looking expectation, looking forward to the coming of Christ and to the great hope of eternity and the certainty of that hope for a believer is the ability to remain steadfast in the, in the face of present trials, whatever those trials might be, knowing that by persevering in the faith, we will be indeed saved by our God to our eternal destiny. So, constant bearing in mind prayer with thanksgiving of your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Do you see what's behind this striking display of vibrancy of Paul in in communicating to the Thessalonians uh, what he's thanking God for in their midst is showing us what's behind their vibrancy as a congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not programs, not superior organizations or management techniques, but rather faith, love, and hope produced by belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was the working, laboring, and enduring of these believers in faith. And just as it was in the church at Thessalonica, so it is today, the greatest need of the Christian church in every age is a continuous experience of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Constant prayer with thanksgiving causes for thanksgiving. Two things by way of final application. In the first place, evaluate your constancy in prayer. 
Prayer is hard work. As one of our uh, former elders would say, prayer is no kidding, hard work. It's labor. We have a hymn uh, in our, our Trinity hymnal that I think is, uh, is, I think it actually leads people astray. Now, prayer can be uplifting. It can be, uh, we can be, as, as Newton said, we can, uh, our souls can be up, uplifted by, uh, by prayer. But make no mistake about it, it's not always a sweet hour of prayer. It's not always sweetness. There is a labor in prayer. It's easier to read your Bible on a regular basis than it is to pray on a regular basis. And the reason for that is that you can mindlessly read your Bible. It's really difficult, uh, if you've ever noticed to be mindless in prayer, to be distracted in prayer, which happens to the best of us when we, uh, even the most pious uh, in uh, the Christian faith, get distracted in their prayer and have to confess to the Lord that they were, that their mind strayed while while they were praying to the living God, the, the, the almighty, the glorious, the majestic God of heaven and earth. So, constant, constancy in prayer is a constant struggle. One of the keys to achieving it is not only to engage in occasional or sporadic prayer throughout the day, but to have a daily scheduled time or times of prayer. It's been my experience in examining, examining members for uh, being received into the church that I often hear people say, when we ask them about their devotional lives, they say, well, uh, I, I read the Bible, I seek to read the Bible daily, and they'll say, I, I, pray, I, I, I pray throughout the day. Um, and then when asked about their prayer in terms of something more uh, concrete, something more specific, uh, they, they're, they find it hard to do that, they say, because of their busy schedule. Now, we should be praying throughout the day. We should be uh, uh, lifting up to the Lord uh, occasional prayers, thanking God, asking God for help, asking for his direction. That should always be the case in our uh, Christian experience. There should be a uh, a constant communion with God that we develop over the course of our lives. But there ought to be specific, scheduled time. We have, we, have these, we have these things modeled for us in the Bible. And we, we need to have those times where we give ourselves to prayer. That's how we develop constancy. Another word for constancy is discipline. That's how we develop the godly discipline of prayer, is to keep those set appointments with God. Think of them like that. Think of them as appointments with, appointments with God to, to be before him 
and to labor in prayer before him, to pour out your, your needs and the needs of others before him. One of the greatest examples that we have in the Bible, I'm always struck by this every time I read it, is in Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 35. Jesus has been in the home of the Apostle Peter's mother, and she's sick, a mother-in-law, rather. She's sick. Uh, he heals her, and they bring him uh, those who are demon-possessed, and he casts out demons. I can imagine he was up late into the evening, doing this work of delivering people from demonic power. And we read in Mark 135 that in the early morning, Jesus arose and went out. That is, he went out of the house where he was staying with Peter's mother-in-law and departed and went to a lonely place and was praying. The Lord Jesus Christ needed to get time alone with his Heavenly Father. How much more do we need to get times alone, dedicated times, specific appointments with our God to wrestle with him in prayer, to lay our needs before him? You might say, well, I know Paul did this, but Paul was an apostle. I know Jesus did this, but Jesus was Jesus. He was the Son of God. But remember Paul's exhortation to the Thessalonians in chapter 5 and verse 17. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. Constancy in prayer. It's a great need in the life of every Christian. Secondly, therefore, when you pray, pray with thanksgiving. Always be thanking God, ever and always. Always and constantly giving thanks to God. How can you foster this in your prayer life? Well, the uh, you can, as we are apt to say, count your blessings. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count them often. A sharp awareness of spiritual blessings prompts fervent prayer and thanksgiving in our lives. We often fail to thank God because we fail to see all that God has done is doing, and will do, promises to do for us. Rehearse your salvation history before God. Psalm 136, we're not going to take time to read that now, but look at Psalm 136. This is a great psalm to read uh, around the table this Thanksgiving um, as you're enjoying your Thanksgiving feast. Psalm 136 is the psalmist's rehearsal of salvation, redemption, uh, in the life of Israel. God's deliverances. God's deliverance from sickness. 
from life-threatening conditions, from discouragement, from anxiety, from depression, from financial difficulties. We could name hundreds of things. It wouldn't take us any time at all to come up with a long list of things. We need to rehearse what God has done for us, rehearse our, our salvation history. Certainly, uh, God's taking us from the dominion of darkness where we were under the condemning power of Satan and delivering us into the kingdom of darkness through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our private worship, our family worship, and our corporate worship are transformed when we take the time to reflect on the blessings that God has showered upon us, that he's lavished upon us in the Lord Jesus Christ and render the thanksgiving that's due to our magnificent God and our Father. Amen. Amen. Oh, Lord our God, we thank you now. We express to you our desire to be more constant in prayer. We know our own hearts, O oh Lord, you know them better than we do. And you see how often we struggle with constancy in prayer. But we want to be those whose lives are marked by this constant constancy in prayer and, and marked by thanksgiving in prayer. Help us to be disciplined in our lives, to establish those set meetings with you, to get in our uh, to get in secret with you by ourselves, to go to a lonely place where it's just you and us and meet with you and speak with you and to lay our needs before you and the needs of others before you. Our supplications, our petitions, and certainly, O oh Lord, our confession of sin and our thanksgiving. Would you make us over into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ in this matter? And even uh, cause us to be conformed to the model that your Holy Spirit has given us in recording this epistle of the Apostle Paul. We ask for your grace, O oh God. And we pray that you would do it according uh, to your promises to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.